Uh, Cherry Developer News, episode number 63 for Monday, October 7th, 2013. I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. And I'm Joel Confino. And we're here to talk about things that interest us in the world of technology. Uh, let's start off with the first uh, talk. First of all, before we do, uh, if you found this podcast, uh, you can always subscribe to it on iTunes. Uh, just search for Cherry Developer News. Uh, also, you can go to our emerging tech site, emergingtech.cherrysolutions.com, and you can pull down the podcast menu and pick the podcast from there, the developer news. So let's start off with an IDE in the web. We talked about these a number of times, but what is Codio? So Codio is yet another you know, browser uh, sorry, IDE, why am I saying brother? That actually handles JavaScript, HTML, CSS. It's sort of for building single-page JS apps, full client-side, you know, thick applications. And the thing that really got me interested in it was that they said they have support for Parse, which is a platform-as-a-service backend, that basically you're allowed to write a JavaScript app, and the storage and, like, the scalability and searches and queries, all that stuff's handled by them. You just basically write your code in JavaScript, expose RESTful services, and then call Parse. Parse handles REST, uh, JSON, and a couple other, I think, uh, protocols. And it also has like support for iOS push notifications and stuff. So you can actually write a JavaScript app and have it talk to iOS apps as well. Anyway, so this browser, I, why do I keep saying browser? I don't know why. I, <laughs> I just I just okay. survived a, a crazy rafting trip, so maybe that's why oh, my you, brain's you were all kind scattered. Of, you, were, you were winking out a minute ago, but now you're back. Yeah, okay, am I? Continue. Here? All right, cool. So anyway, this IDE... <laughs> Is, uh, you know, full web support, has support for Bower, support for Less, and CoffeeScript, and SAS. Neat. And seems to be a little more full-fledged than, like, Brackets, and seems to be more geared towards true web development than if you guys ever used uh, WebStorm, which is a JetBrains product. Yeah, which is actually pretty cool. I've only used the trial version of it, but still, it's pretty cool. Yeah. And this allows you, the whole thing is like, okay, you write your JavaScript app, and you can test it, deploy it, and basically run it against a back-end service right away, right from your IDE. So... It's, it's kind of funny to see all these different IDs pop up around web apps the last two years, which really shows, wow, there's this whole market of just pure JavaScript developers out there now, and they're building tooling just for them. And it's all, so much tooling, like with the Yeoman and Bower and Grunt and all that stuff. So it's a whole new market segment that wasn't there before for the development community. And it grew up very quickly, too. Yeah. Like, like you said, last two years, definitely last year, a lot of steam. I did look at the pricing. Uh, pricing is uh, for, for public beta. All features available for free, and then after they leave beta, there'll be a small monthly fee for creating private projects. But looks really cool. Yeah, I'm sorry, and um, yeah. So and for open source, it'll always be free, and also for education. So if anything, so we, I mean, at a bare minimum, you're able to kind of write JavaScript front ends and things like that, and in a training setting, and use their tool for it, which is kind yeah. of cool. That's really neat. Okay, neat. So that's at codio.com, c-o-d-i-o.com. Yeah, and check out Parse while while you're at it too. It's a pretty cool service. Very neat. All right, so it uh, turns out that the Arduino community, which is a community of a bunch of hackers, including Don Coleman, um, uh, there are people that like to put together uh, boards that have sensors and connect to the outside world and robots and lasers and God, God knows help what. us all. I know. It's, a, it's your, your robot army, Sue John. It's coming. Yes. Uh, it's it's going to be a huge cloud of Arduinos walking towards you. But you can get these things anywhere. If you're in the Philadelphia area or anywhere there's a micro center, you walk into micro center, go into the book section, there's a whole wall of these uh, you can buy for cheap. Or Radio Shack, even, believe it or not, has Arduinos they're really? selling. Yes. Hmm. So micro if you like center, the hack, wow. Oh, yeah. If you like the hack and you want to you know, play around electronics, this is your thing. Um, so in Maker Faire, just before Maker Faire Rome, uh, the Arduino team, which is a team of people that develop these things, actually uh, have been putting together a few uh, new boards. One of them is called the Intel Galileo board. 
So um, I'm not sure what the chipset is uh, for prior Arduinos, like the current ones now, whether it's ARM or a Texas Instruments chip. I have no idea. Um, and we probably had to drag Don in here for this. But uh, this one is one of the first ones that uses an Intel chip. So you actually can, can work on you know, Intel uh, hardware and actually do, I guess, the Intel assembly language and, and things like that. Um, now, they mentioned these are Linux boards. I'm assuming there's some sort of low-level Linux running in this. Um, so that one's cool. It's got... Uh, it's a development board, so it's really good for quickly prototyping simple designs, as they're saying in this uh, Make Zine article, uh, like LED light, light displays that respond to things like, ooh, social media, negative points there. Uh, <laughs> or um, tackling more complex products, as they're saying, from automating home appliances to building life-size robots, which we're going to talk about later that are going to take over the world. Um, so bottom line, that's one of them. And uh, I guess that's, that's going to be around 60 bucks. Which is really cool. Wow. You get a, an Intel. So it still board. like follows the standard Arduino spec. Yep. So, wow. Standard Arduino spec, just nice and fast, and Intel in terms of the chipset, which should be very interesting. Now, secondly, this one isn't out yet. Um, this is a new one, uh, the Arduino TRE, uh, and so apparently there's this now um, uh, one gigahertz Satara AM335X processor. Um, and they're saying with this Texas Instruments processor, they will get a hundred times more performance with this board. So, and when you think about what you're trying to do with these boards, you're sampling things, right? So you can have, I would guess, greater resolution in sampling and greater resolution in control. You know, if you're stepping a motor up and down, you have that much more finesse that you can work with. Um, very, very cool. So that one, I think, is coming out in the spring. The Arduino TRE. Expected to ship it in spring 2014, and they don't have a price, but I would assume that it's probably in the $100 range or something like that. I keep doing that to your headphones. Well, wow, local, like lo local robotics clubs and like schools, I'm having a field day right now with all this stuff coming out. I mean, I wish when I was a kid they had this stuff. Yeah, I know, seriously. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, the worst we got was like, let's wire wrap and put together a bowling pin light, you know. <laughs> I had wow. to rip apart my dad's old printers and try to make um, like remote control cars out of them. It didn't go that well. You know what we used to do in electronics class? Oh, pretty they neat. gave us, I must burn down the house. Yeah, they gave us, <laughs> this guy was crazy. He gave us electric you know power supplies and stuff and he had old world war ii surplus equipment and he said take it apart now we're opening up these things there's capacitors with all that bad stuff on them what are we doing we're trying to melt screwdrivers by overcharging a capacitor and shorting the leads it's lucky we didn't die wow but these you still guys, your 10 fingers you know I'm, well, 11 but okay, that's okay right. it's from the pcbs don't do this at home if any kids are listening to this <laughs> podcast right. don't ever do that um but anyway so this is cool this is great so anyway two new arduino boards one now and one coming in the spring it looks like the the old processors were amtel which i never even heard of at atmel rather i can spell it atmel okay yeah, i've never heard of that yeah and they're worldwide leader in design and manufacture of microcontrollers but it's interesting though because intel has a big interest now in mobile you know they're part of the wintel the pc block that's what they made their money on and right. now they have to go to mobile low power so it's pretty interesting to see intel in Arduino, they that's that's no accident that they decided they've got to get Definitely. to these low power devices. Well, we all know that I mean, I'm sitting here with a little iPad and everything. Everyone's walking around with small devices now. I mean, how often do you sit down in front of a computer besides to record a podcast or code? Right. <laughs> all right. So um, let's talk about the uh, the the evil empire of robots. Sujan, what is this uh, super fast robot now? So last year they came out with like this dog canine. They call it Cheetah. Mm -hmm. Cheetah looking robot. You know, it's quadruped, has four legs. And it's pretty freaking fast. Like the, the version that came out last year was 28 miles an hour it can yeah. reach basically. And the, so the thing last year was it was attached with a power cord. So it probably could only go so far Pluck. unless you like add like a tons of extension cords or something. That'd be pretty crazy. <laughs> but this one is completely wireless and it can just roam around freely. It can only go up to 16 miles an hour. So you may be able to outrun it with a Segway. It'd be pretty funny <laughs> watching this chase Segway. 
But <laughs> you guys need to go to this link, <laughs> listeners, and look at the animated gift that they have looping over and over again. It looks like it's on a prowl and it's going to attack something. It's just scary as all heck. Save yourself a few seconds. Do a search and put Gizmodo. Super fast robot mm. runs on its own. You'll find I'm it. I'm really worried. Like, imagine attaching a laser to this thing's head. It, it, look, it looks like the Terminator's dog. It I does. Mean, yeah, exactly. Scary. Is there an animal in that cage? What is in uh, that? Oh, my god. I don't gosh. know. But just imagine, imagine like, an oh innocuous gerbil in there, like, running around. <laughs> <laughs> gerbil ruling the universe. But it's I, it's menacing. All. all this thing, it, need, it needs, like, red-colored eyes just yeah. to make it really scary and, like, creep up on you at night. Yeah, yeah. This but, is this is free, as the guy says. This is freaking scary. I'm with him from DARPA. Yeah. The only yeah. thing I can, I mean, I can't see the military purpose other than scaring the heck out of the population. Here, Fluffy. <laughs> yeah, it's just like lasers come out and shoot you. Yeah, and destroy. I don't know. It's pretty scary, Not dude. Cool. I mean, Not it's cool. It's probably pretty impressive feat, though. Well, didn't you hear like about a year ago they were talking about how they were trying to find alternative fuel sources for robots? And they were saying that it could, you know, in the environment, it could chop down wood and cut it and use it for fuel or use biomass for fuel. Dude, never make robots that don't rely on us. That's when it starts to end. (laughs) (laughs) These people are crazy. I hope they could make a robot one day that can use old printer cartridges (laughs) and run on that. That'd be awesome. They can get all my Epson cartridges. Yeah, seriously, dude. <laughs> Seven hate, inks. That, I hate those that things. That and VCR tapes. That light, there you go. that light magenta color is always going out on me, and I never have a copy. All right. It's a conspiracy, the whole printer cartridge. It is. It's, it's worse than diamond money. Um, <laughs> speaking, of, uh, speaking of diamond money, let's go into um, another in infrastructure as a service cloud player. So uh, it turns out that Verizon had bought a company called CloudSwitch in 2011. This is off of uh, GigaOM uh, and uh, by Bob Darrow. Verizon takes on big game with news inter- new enterprise uh, infrastructure as a service. And this is part of his week in cloud uh, segment. So apparently this is a Zen hypervisor-based um, platform. And Zen hypervisor is the kernel of what is in VMware that you run every day when you play in, in a virtual machine. Um, and also one of the things that they have as a big benefit is, uh, and this is for the person who announced it, is that they will run existing VMware workloads uh, which is an important consideration given that VMware dominates in a corporate servant room. So if you think about it, you've got your company, your company uses you know, Zen hypervisors inside of their, their, your VMware or maybe ESX or whatever platform. All of a sudden, a cloud company comes along and says, yeah, we can run some of those things in cloud for you, and you can just pick them up, copy them over, and fire them up. Hmm. That's pretty cool. What's Verizon's angle on this? I, I had no idea Verizon was even in this space I'm at all. sure it's just the service fees, you know? Okay. Yeah, they probably think. have a huge infrastructure. See it as a market. Yeah, you've got Amazon. Well, who else? Not too many other players. They may decide. Well, Google tried. Yeah, no, their thing was not. I mean, there's Rackspace and there's all these other Rackspace, ones that are out there. Yeah, there are a bunch. And and you think of like, um, but that's not really. Uh, well, that that is internet. Uh, that's infrastructure as a service. I'm thinking of the other ones like Heroku. That's more platform as a service. Right. This is purely virtual machines. Um, so it's in it's in beta right now, or at least it's getting ready to become beta. Uh, I would think that you're not going to really see it uh, in the next two months. It's probably going to run through a long private beta period. And uh, you can get an invite to it if you want to. Just go to their Verizon Cloud page and enter your email address and contact information, and they'll, they'll get back to you. Uh, so that's what's going on there. So keep a lookout for that eventually. Rubinius. Uh, Joel, tell us a little bit about Rubinius. 
Well, uh, there's a, several Ruby runtimes you can use. Rubinius is the Ruby runtime that is written in Ruby. Um, MRI is the sort of the reference implementation. That stands for Matt's Ruby interface, right? Or, or interpreter. Like interpreter, that's it. Yeah. yeah. And then there's uh, JRuby, which is the Java Ruby. Um, so the Hadel project that, that we work on is using uh, JRuby. JRuby is the fastest historical Ruby, but there's a lot of benefits to running um a native or, or a different kind of Ruby. Basically, JRuby starts up slow because the JVM starts up slow, where some of these others are immediate. So um, now that Rubinius has supported basically the latest version of Ruby, um, we've been trying it out with Hadle, and it is really fast. We notice a nice speed improvement. The weird thing is, for our application, we actually notice a speed improvement over JRuby, which According to benchmarks, doesn't you know doesn't seem possible. Although benchmarks are just that they're somebody's made up numbers. Right. For certain applications, you know, the, the results may vary, and so this is a good thing. And actually, we think that it's because JRuby could be faster if you figured out how to tune it exactly right. Because the JVM does need some tuning, and that out of the box though, this uh, Rubinius is could be faster. It's certainly better for development because you're. Uh, because the startup time is zero um, for running your tests, and when you're developing this build test deploy cycle is basically zero with JRuby. Um, even though in maybe in production it might theoretically run faster, when you're developing locally, uh, it's much slower to have to wait. Even though the JVM starts up in like ten seconds, ten seconds versus zero, you really start to notice it. Yeah, absolutely. So interesting. So I, uh, I tried playing with this last night, but I had some compiler errors. Uh, but it is available. Like you can use RVM to get it. Uh, and build it out. And they're, the one interesting thing about this article, uh, which is, uh, it's an info queue um, by uh, Miro Stalker, and uh, it's Rubinius 2.0, uh, and the last version of Rubinius was 1.2.4, and it supported Ruby 1.8.7, which is what basically our website was built on for a long time. Uh, and now they've ep- they deprecated it, they've uh, told people to move off from 1.8 to 1.9, and they're trying to push people to 2.0. Uh, this one, uh, two over Binius is planning on supporting Ruby version 2.1, like very soon. So they're, they're ahead of the curve almost. It is good news. And, you know, this kind of cuts to the um, running whatever argument of all these different different platforms, which one is the fastest and does this performance really matter? And, and in my opinion, Ruby is and pretty much always has been fast enough. And because it um, also provides a beautiful language, it, it has a lot of developer productivity that it, that it is an excellent platform. But it is good to see yeah, you know, I'm so I so I don't like to get stuck in the benchmark game because obviously if you wrote it in assembler that would blow away everything. It just depends on what you need too. Yeah, yeah. Right? But I think and as a total as a total package, I'm you know very happy with it as a platform, and it's really good to see that that these runtimes continue to improve. I still think the JVM is probably the most mature, but Rubinius has generational garbage collecting just like Java. So I think these other runtimes are going to learn from Java's. Um, basically long history, pick up the good stuff and, and get faster and faster, which is good for everybody. Right, right. Cool. Uh, let's take a couple minutes out of this uh, to talk about our upcoming Data IO conference. So um, Data IO is coming up on October 30th uh, all day. I think it starts at 9 o'clock in the morning um, or 8.30 perhaps for, for breakfast. And um, it's going to be downtown in Philadelphia. But anyway, so Data IO 2013. So it's going to be downtown at the Sierra Center in Philadelphia, um, right off the train basically, not far from the train. Uh, so if you're taking the train down, it's very convenient. Um, and we now have all of our speakers set. So it's at emergingtechnocherrysolutions.com slash data IO 2013, data I uh, letter O 2013. And uh, let's kind of go through who the speakers are. So 
Um, we have people such as uh, the creator of Vertex, Lance Ball. Uh, Vertex, we talked about a little bit, is an asynchronous uh, application server, kind of like Node, uh, that's that's kind of event-driven, uh, except that it runs on the JVM and it uses Netty. We talked about it a little bit a couple episodes ago. Yeah. Uh, so he talks about, you know... Uh, in his talk, he's going to discuss the platform itself, um, you know, discuss how clustering works, things like that, and uh, write a simple application using JSON messages from a server to a mobile browser in just a couple lines of JavaScript. So that's him. Uh, then we have two people from a company used to be called Media Six Degrees. It's now called Distillery. That's DS uh, Distillery. Ed- Edward Capriolo. And uh, Edward's going to be talking uh, about um, MapReduce paradigms using Apache Hive. Uh, and so he's going to talk about that in one talk. And then he's also going to talk about um, uh, common big data software challenges and how they can be solved using batch and stream processing. He'll look at Kafka, which is an Apache project for public subscribe messaging, yeah. Storm for stream processing, and Cassandra as a NoSQL data store. Sweet. That should be a That's really, awesome. Yeah, man. that should be an awesome talk. Uh, and uh, let's see, Max DeMarzi is, is coming in. Actually, if you're interested in Neo4j, which is a graph database, uh, you might want to uh, register for the day before in uh, Fort Washington, where we are. We have a one-day uh, Neo4j tutorial that's kind of centered around the same thing. He's in town for both. So if you wanted a full day on just Neo4j, you could do that, and it's also low, low prices, under 100 bucks. Yeah. Love and Neo4j. It's yeah. Cool. yeah, Neo4j is really cool, and people, like, it's actually used in production a lot. There's a company in Exton called ThingWorks, which uh, is like the Internet of Things. They do it like sensors, devices, a whole whole nine yards with all that. And they their entire data platform that where they store all this information on that comes from all these different sensors is neo4j fantastic really powerful yeah and so um so he'll be here for both and if you uh, register for their uh one day event you'll get a discount code for this one uh we have uh camille fournier uh she is a company called rent the runway her main thing there it's kind of a fashion company her main thing there is uh supporting the platform and so she's dealing with uh keeping servers alive so she's running zookeeper uh, and she's a committer of Zookeeper, so she should be giving us some information about how Zookeeper works, cool, and some you know kind of best practices, so to speak. Uh, Lars George from Cloudera. Now, this he's got two talks here. One is on HBase, uh, and so his whole thing is how do you size HBase, which is kind of a what is it a column-based database? It's some sort of big database that Hadoop uses to store information. Um, file system? No, that's... That's HDFS. That's right. HDFS. But HBase is a database on top of it that they right, can right. stuff things into for MapReduce, when things like that. need random real-time read-write access. Right. So he has a whole talk on sizing it, like how would you size an HBase uh, platform or cluster. And then he also has uh, it's something called Parquet he wants to talk about, which is an open-source columnar data format for Hadoop. Um, and so that's where I got the column stuck in my head. And uh, so Parquet is, as it says in the abstract, based on the ideas printed, presented in Google's Dremel paper and implements them in the open source Hadoop ecosystem. So that's interesting. He has two talks. Then we've got Grant Ingersoll from LucidWorks talking about one talk about Lucene and Solar 4, uh, you know, kind of powering the next generation of search. Then he has one on Mahout, a, cool. uh, a, a talk on Mahout. He is a Mahout, I believe, committer. Is he really? Wow. Yep. Co-found- like- Actually, he's a co-founder of the Mahout Machine wow. Learning Project. So not only is he a committer, he wrote it. <laughs> I've heard good things about that. Yeah. It's cool. So I if you're like curious it. about machine learning, you can learn about Mahout and learn how that works. Uh, and so they're working towards 1.0 release. Clearly, he's pretty busy with that as well. Uh, then we have Walt Mankowski from Drexel University. He's a local uh, fellow, and he's into uh, programming with Python. And so he says that rather than writing you know, high-end C programs to do, 
uh, mathematical calculations or whatever you use from an engineering perspective. NumPy for numeric calculations and SciPy for scientific work um, can do the same work that you could do in Mat Matrix Lab, MATLAB, uh, and other platforms and do it in a simple yeah, language. Like I've Python. used both a little bit. I oh, yeah? went to a few data Philly meetups cool. and they had a thing on NumPy, SciPy, and a thing called Pandas, all Python based, but really powerful, but really easy to use. That's great. Yeah, awesome. We also then have Claudia Perlick. She uh, keynoted for us at ETE uh, 2013. Uh, and so she has uh, a talk about things like machine learning theory and predictive modeling. So that's really interesting too. Uh, and we have Eric Snyder uh, of Chariot Solutions. Uh, he's going to be talking about Amazon Redshift, which is a data warehousing uh, platform that Amazon has in the cloud. So nice conference, one day, two talks at a time. So bring a friend and share notes. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll get that all done over the Sierra Center. And it's it's reasonably priced. It's $80. We just want to get this information out to people and uh, show them where the future is headed for data processing. Completely awesome. Kafka, yeah, Lucene, Mahal, Neo4j, yeah. Storm, Vertex, Zookeeper. I mean, this is like... Yeah, to be I able mean, to get, like, committers and co-founders speaking, it's really freaking cool. Yeah, it's really going to be a good conference. So hurry up. The, the, the seats are selling, so you want to get them. All right. Uh, let's see. Eclipse Virgo. Now, speaking of local people, <laughs> so uh, let's let's talk very briefly about what the Eclipse projects uh, around uh, OSGI are, uh, specifically around uh, OSGI and kind of dynamic module uh, systems. So there's an Eclipse project called Eclipse Virgo. Uh, Virgo, I think, is kind of the blanket project for all the OSGI container stuff. Uh, believe it runs on top of. And I'm going to be wrong here, which hopefully Dimitri will fix us. Um, I believe it runs on top of uh, Equinox. And it provides a uh, container for registering and unregistering dynamic modules, dynamic services. Um, and then I know that the actual Blueprints project, which is called Gemini, is one of the sub-projects of this. And Dimitri, one of our engineers, Dimitri Sklut, uh, he has been doing work on Gemini for a long time. It used to be called Spring DM back in the Spring Source days. And if we dial all the way back, Spring DM server, which I think is what Eclipse Virgo is, was open sourced and sent to uh, the Eclipse project when uh, back in, I guess, 2009, uh, SpringSource got out of the OSGI server business. They started, they tried it, and it just wasn't their core market. So they stayed with TC Server, which is a Tomcat-based server, and they, they donated the uh, Eclipse project. They also donated time from a bunch of developers uh, to kind of shepherd that through. Glenn Normington was one of those. Now, Glenn has moved to Pivotal. Pivotal is more focused on data science and things like that. Uh, and so he's not going to be doing as much in that space. So there was a big talk about what do we do with Eclipse Virgo now that the leaders are starting to move on. Uh, and there are a number of committers that are very interested. One of those happens to be Dimitri Sklut, and he happens to be uh, potentially taking over leadership of Project Gemini Blueprint uh, as, the, as the lead uh, person there which would be fantastic. So he's been voted in as committer. He has been doing patches from what I understand. And uh, he will be chairing uh, that one project, which makes sense because he's been living and breathing that project for a long time. So Dimitri, congratulations. We'll put a link in the show notes to the message board of all the people who are voting up to be uh, leaders in those particular places so you can kind of follow along. Let's take a look at Sauce Labs, JavaScript testing company, right? The article is called Browser Swarm to Automate JavaScript Testing Across Browsers by Jeff Martin on InfoQ. Uh, and so what they've done is this team uh, allows you to hook your GitHub project into their service, and it will then run tests through QUnit or something else that you've set up, uh, you know, test, test platforms. Um, 
and it will then run them across a bunch of different browsers, Internet Explorer, Chrome, Firefox, Opera, Safari, and it basically gives you kind of a continuous integration uh, for browser testing across a number of browsers from the cloud. Uh, looks very promising. Um, if you want to see what it looks like, you can go over to Browser Swarm uh, Beta, which is at browserswarm.com, and then they've got a bunch of open source projects sitting here. For example, Backbone JS or any of the ones that, that that are listed. And when you click on it, you'll see each of the times that someone triggered a continuous integration build, they've got a GitHub commit. I guess that's what that is there, um, and it shows you know check marks for green, warnings for for you know messages, and then X for failures across Chrome 27, Firefox 19 through 21 i.e. 6 through 10, Safari 5 and 6, and two versions of Opera. Um, so that's pretty neat. And you can click on the actual uh, message itself and get the actual error output and take a look at the entire job stream output as well. It's very cool. I mean, Sauce Labs has had a product for a long time where basically you run a test server somewhere, like say you run your server on your laptop or somewhere, then through basically like a VPN, their cloud thing will run your tests, like your Selenium test, whatever, but they'll run it in all kinds of browsers. So they, I've known about them and been intrigued. This takes it one step further, though, and I love this class of products, which is just give us your GitHub, access to your GitHub, and we'll automatically go find it, run it, and this report back to you. There's other products like Code Climate, which is totally different. That's for code quality metrics, but I love this idea because it's so frictionless. You don't have to be running a server. You don't have to run anything, and because it's JavaScript, they don't need you to be running a server, whereas for other things, they can't. Obviously, if you give them your GitHub account, they can't necessarily run your server just from that. Um, so... I think it's awesome. I mean, it's it's one of those really frictionless ways that you can improve your quality of your project. Right. And it will hook into things like Jenkins, Bamboo, uh, Travis CI, Strider. Um, so they, they mentioned that there as well. And it's going to be free for open source projects. So if you're doing an open source contribution, you want to build an open source project, you, you can use this like right away. Um, I'm not sure what the actual regular plans are. Oh, here's the pricing. No, I think that their new thing is free because it's in beta. and then the But their existing product they already have the pricing in there you know if you're doing something where you want to constantly test against a bunch of browsers that's going to pay for itself it is because you really just have to constantly say how much time would it really take us to babysit this kind of server or whatever yeah. and then you know and many many times it's worth it to just pay somebody else 49 dollars a month because you're going to spend way more than that doing it yourself yep true again don't forget about the, the data io conference on the t on the 30th that's at emergingtech.cherrysolutions.com slash data io 2013 and uh, beyond that, I guess that's it. So for the development news, I'm Ken Rimple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. And I'm Joel Confina. Make it a good week. <laughs>